We are, uh, we are in a hard place right now as a body. Difficult spot. There's been, uh, been a lot of things that have come to us. A lot of suffering. We have people among us that we know, that we love, who are experiencing very serious health problems. We've got others dealing with grief, profound grief. Grief brought on by the loss of spouses, children. We've got people who are in difficult financial positions, finding themselves pressed, not sure where the rent's going to come from next month. We've got some people among us who are in, having real serious relational problems. So where do we go? Where, where do we turn? What do we do when we're suffering? We go to the Scriptures. This morning, I want you to go to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to take up the reading for you, beginning in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, and beginning in verse 18. Paul says, I consider, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he has already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose.
purpose. Let's pray. Father, we are treading back over familiar ground. And yet, O Lord, we need your Spirit this morning to help us. We need your Spirit to enable us to see the truth that you have recorded for us here. We might have an anchor for our soul. We need, O Father, to have ears to hear what you have for us this morning. Father, I need your enablement to make plain the truth of your word and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Overcoming Suffering. Overcoming Suffering. This passage here, we're jumping into the middle of a context to be sure, but this passage here has many, many things for us, but there are three this morning that I think we need to latch on to. Three. Three soul-stabilizing truths. Three soul-stabilizing truths that will enable us to triumph in the midst of suffering. Not just get through it, Not just survive it, but the triumph in it. Look at verse 37 for a minute. Paul says that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's not a statement about just getting through, just getting by, just surviving. It's a statement about triumphing in the midst of agonizing difficulties. Now, this is not just pie in the sky. This is not just sort of some kind of hope maybe it happens. Paul is saying to us that the gospel has the power. It is the power of God unto salvation. And the power of the gospel is sufficient to enable his people to triumph in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. They will understand it. If they will believe it. And if they will put it into practice. And that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. So there are three soul-stabilizing truths. The first one here in verses 18 through 25 is the hope of glory. It is the hope of glory. This This is the gospel. The gospel. And in particular, that part of the gospel that says this life is not all there is. There is a hope of glory. A hope of glory. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This word, I considered. I consider that the idea here is I have thought about this, I have done the math. This is a rational response. 
based on the gospel. Based on the gospel. Notice he begins the verse 4. For I consider. He's giving, a, he's giving a reason here. Notice verse 17 where he says, If children then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The, the context is suffering and glory right next to each other. Right next to each other. And what is the relationship between the two? How do they stand together? According to Apostle Paul here in verse 18, his logic, his calculation, as he, as he works it out here, he says, listen, they are not of equal weight. They are not of equal weight. In fact, the reality of the matter is, is that one is exceedingly heavy and the other is comparatively light. And in this present life, he says that the sufferings of this present time are slight. They are, they are small. They are light. In comparison. In comparison to the glory that awaits the sons of God. Now that is not earthly math. It's hard to comprehend that reality when, when the difficulties are pressing down on our chest. By the way, this, uh, this statement here in verse 18, this is not given by a guy who led a charmed life, huh? Oh, that's easy for you to say. Where have you ever suffered? The Apostle Paul knew what suffering was. Just to remind you, beaten for his faith a number of times, imprisoned, hungry, thirsty, sleepless, shipwrecked, Overworked to the point of exhaustion and near despair. And yet he says, when he does the math, the sufferings endured by the believer, by the child of God in this life, don't compare to the weight of glory to come at the resurrection and the age to come. He says this is not all there is. God has not closed the books. He hasn't tabulated the columns. This is the reality of the gospel. Now, we're not suffering for Christ. Certainly not in, a, in the sense of, of those early believers. But we are nonetheless suffering, many of us. But listen, we, we need to consider, we need to do the math, we need to, we need to make a logical deduction like Paul 
has here. And, and here's the logical deduction for us. Listen, if, if suffering for Christ is light in comparison to the eternal glory of the age to come, then certainly all of these other things that are common to man have to be light as well. They have to be light. Comparatively speaking, they are weightless. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation, the revealing of the sons of God. Paul needs to support this bold statement here and this idea that that we need to, as a child of God, make a correct assessment of reality, make a correct value judgment. And so he draws on creation here. Perhaps you've wondered, what has creation got to do with all of this stuff on suffering? Why do you bring this in here, Paul? He brings it as, a, as an illustration. This is an extended illustration to support his point. Essentially, his argument here, beginning in verse 19 and, and following, is, is simply this. Since the creation has a persistent hope of a future glory, the believer must likewise. You know how God does that. Look to the ant, oh Sluggard, right? Learn something. He's saying, listen, child of God, look to the creation and learn something. Learn something. Anxious longing, verse 19, of the creation. That's a, that's a poetic expression. It has the idea of, of straining your neck to see something. Kind of like being a spectator at the, at the rose parade, Right? You know, about three, three levels deep in the crowd, and, and, and the float and the band are, are starting to turn the corner, and, and you're trying to see it. You're stretched out, trying to see it. That's what he says creation is doing. Creation is stretching out its neck, looking for something, with the expectation that it's coming. And what is creation straining to see? The unveiling of the true nature of the children of God. You see it? It is straining to see, verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. Paul's already made clear for us in verses 14 through 17 that, that we are sons of God. But here's the problem. We're suffering, verse 18. We're suffering, verse 26. We're we're weak. We don't much appear like sons of the king. How, How can we be sons of the king and be involved in such difficulties? Because God doesn't tabulate the columns at the end of every day. When Christ returns, 
and summons his church to be with him and transforms these mortal bodies into the glorified bodies he has promised to us, then it will be revealed who we are. Then it'll be known. The world will see the glory that is ours in Christ. But for now, it is obscured, it is, it is shaded, it is hidden. How can you be the children of the king and be in such a hard place? Paul goes on here, verses 20, 21. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right? Why is that creation longing? They're longing, the creation longs because it is suffering because of Adam. The creation is bearing the brunt of the fall of Adam. When Adam disobeyed, rebelled against God, ate the fruit and the tree of which he was forbidden to eat, God cursed the ground. God cursed the ground. God limited the fruitfulness of the ground. He deprived this creation of its ability to fulfill the purpose for which he had created it. Subjecting it instead to corruption and decay. The corruption and decay spread to the animal kingdom, to death and disease, right? Adam's sin from him spreads from himself to his wife, to his children, to his posterity. And we live in this broken world. We live in this broken world. But God gave us a ray of hope, beloved. In the midst of the, of the curse, he gives us a ray of hope, Right? He shall bruise you on the heel and you shall what? Bruise him on the head. There is a ray of hope in the midst of this messed up world. And and that, that ray of hope grows clearer and sharper for those who have eyes to see. The day is coming. The day is coming when... When this creation will be freed from its corruption and it will share in the glory of God in a sinless universe. Someday this creation will enjoy its freedom to, to fully, to, to perfectly fulfill the purpose for which God has created it. But not until the Lord of creation overcomes his disgrace. Paul goes on and he says, verse 22, For we know, for we know, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Creation is straining. The, the neck is, is out. They are looking around the corner. They are, they are looking for the rays of the rising of the sun. 
And while they're doing so, they are experiencing the pain of childbirth. But just like childbirth, the pain is not meaningless, but carries with it the hope of new life. The hope of new life. Paul goes on and he says in verse 23, and not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, a redemption of the body. Paul says, listen, not only is the creation groaning to be released from the corruption of sin, but we too are inwardly groaning as we await. That great day. The transformation that's coming. The resurrection from the dead. By which our physical bodies will be made ready to enter into the presence of God himself. Full, unhindered fellowship. Paul says the creation is groaning. He says we are groaning. And that groaning, by the way, is is often nonverbal in nature. Often nonverbal. It it consists of this sense, this uh, frustration that we feel. Frustration. We are frustrated by our own sin. We are we are frustrated by our regular failures. We are frustrated by the reality that that we cannot be and do what we most want to be and do. We are weak and frail. And that characterizes this present age. But beloved, listen. There is an age coming. It is coming. And when it comes... The frustrations will pass and the groanings will end. How do I know? How can I be so sure? How, Paul, how could you be so sure? He says it's, I'm sure, because of the indwelling Spirit of God. Right? Right? Sure, because of the indwelling, indwelling Spirit of God. The first fruit of the Spirit, verse 23. You see that? First fruit. It's a reference to an Old Testament um, practice by which the very early part of the harvest uh, would, would be offered and given to God, and it would be given to God in in confident assurance that the that there was a bounty to follow there's a greater harvest to come yet to come and paul says verse 23 listen the indwelling presence of the spirit of god within his children is just like that it is the down payment it is the promise it is the pledge it is the first fruit of the reality of what god has in store for us We are the children of God. 
How do we know that? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the Son of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God. It's just that our full sonship is yet to be manifest. We've been adopted. But our adoption has not yet been publicly proclaimed. We're children of the king. And someday, that will be widely known. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Children of the king. But right now, living with all kinds of affliction, all kinds of affliction. Paul says, verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. What best characterizes this present life for you and I is a life of hope. It is a life of hope. Not a, boy, I hope it comes true kind of thing. But a a confident, settled assurance that God will complete what he has begun in us. Someday he will transform us. He will liberate us from bondage to decay and sin and and. and Give us the glorified bodies that are necessary and suited to live in his presence forever. Paul says we hope in this. We're assured of this. Can't see it with my eyes. So I must wait in faith, patiently, trusting, that God's promise will come true. Beloved, if you are in a hard place right now, if it's pressing down on you right now, you need to stabilize your soul. And the beginning to, to, to the bringing about the stabilization of your soul is to hope in the glory that has been promised you in Christ. To recognize who you are. And what God will do. The hope of glory. Secondly. Paul says that's not all. The second soul stabilizing truth is the intercession of the spirit. The intercession of the spirit. Verse 26. In 
And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. In the same way. In the same way that hope and the glory to come sustains us in our sufferings, verses 24 and 25, the Spirit sustains us in our weaknesses. Hope is invisible to the human eye, so too is the Spirit's ministry. They are both only seen with eyes of faith. The same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Interesting word here, weaknesses. It's a general term, a broad term. It, it refers to every sort of weakness or illness. Paul is, is widening it out here. It, it speaks of all kinds of bodily afflictions, whether they stem from persecution or merely from the human condition. The Spirit helps, he says. This word helps, this verb helps, it, it speaks about the activity of a person who comes alongside another person to, to take part of their heavy burden and to, and to help them bear it. That's how he helps. It's pretty amazing, don't you think? In the midst of our suffering, Paul says, God himself and the person of his Holy Spirit comes alongside us to help us carry our heavy load. Now, I've helped many people move through the years. Kind of a, you know, the manly thing to do, right? Except my back is now at a place where it's now got to be left to the younger manly men to do. I remember one time uh, helping to move a piano. It's always that way, right? Can you help me move? Sure. We have a piano. (sighs) Righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know how a piano's moved, right? You get about six, eight guys around it, everybody lifts, and then grunts. And they make little, you know, little baby steps and little grunting noises. There's a lot of groaning that goes on. A lot of groaning. It's interesting here. How does the, how does the Spirit of God come alongside and lift the heavy load? What is the heavy load? Verse 26, the, the heavy load is prayer. Isn't that interesting? The heavy load, Paul says, that the, that the Holy Spirit of God comes along to, to help carry for us is prayer. It's prayer. For we do not know how to pray as we should, verse 26. This is the illustration, this is the confirmation of the, of the Spirit of God coming alongside His children to help them in their weakness. And in particular, it is their weakness with the subject of prayer. Now, what help does He render to us? Our problem with prayer is not how to pray in terms of style or manner. Right? Eyes open, eyes closed, kneeling, standing, laying, walking, driving, 
of not sleeping. Right? So it's not about style. It's not about manner. Our problem, our load, heavy load, when it comes to prayer is content. Content. We cannot tell what is really best for us. That's the load. Now, there are instructions in scriptures on prayer, general instructions with regard to prayer. It does give us some direction with regard to praying in the midst of suffering, right? So immediately you're thinking, okay, well, what about James 1? Well, yes, James 1. James 1, right? We're told to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. He goes on to talk about how trials produce endurance. And then James says, listen, in the midst of those trials, if we lack the wisdom to see that they are producing endurance in us, then we are to ask of God in prayer. Verse 5. So there is some general instruction. But that still doesn't tell us exactly what is God doing in our life through the trials and the sufferings that we are presently enduring. We don't have a general idea, you know, endurance. We don't know God's specific will in this matter. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Notice verse 26. We do not know how to pray as we should. Do you see that? Then take a look at verse 27. Because there's a parallel here. At the end of verse 27, it says, according to the will of God. These two thoughts are in parallel here. We do not know how to pray as we should pray. And what is as we should pray? It is according to the will of God. That's the burden that we need help with. That's the burden. We're finite. We're frail, we're sinful, we're imperfect. We're not able to pray with any kind of absolute certainty or consistency with regard to the will of God. Many times we're not even aware of the will of God in the midst of our difficulties, wouldn't you agree? why when we get into a particular situation and we're praying, if we are prudent, we will qualify our prayer with what? According to your will, O God. According to your will. Beloved, even the Apostle Paul, when suffering wasn't always aware of what was going on. You can follow it yourself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 10 where he continues to ask God to, to take this, this thorn of affliction from him. You don't keep asking God to take something away if, you're, if you know exactly what he's doing in you. We don't know how to pray as we should. We do not know how to pray according to the will of God. But, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The intercessor is is one who pleads another person's case. The Spirit of God comes along and pleads for us. 
He carries the heavy load for us. And he does it by pleading our case with God when we don't know how. Now, does he do this? End of verse 26. With groanings too deep for words. With groanings too deep for words. Listen, Paul's point is not that the groanings cannot be put into words. That is, that they are inexpressible. What he's saying is the groanings are not put into words. That is, they are unexpressed. They are unexpressed. They are wordless groans. The Spirit's intercession for us is accompanied by and expressed in wordless groans. They are a passion that goes beyond words. The Spirit of God is so committed to His children in the midst of their difficulty, His passion runs so hot for them that He groans for and with them. Interesting progression here, isn't it? Verse 23, creation groans. Verse, excuse me, verse 22, verse 23, the believer groans. Now the Spirit groans. The idea is he's, he's entering in with us. God is not distant. God is not remote. He's not untouched by our difficulties. He is right there with us in the person of his spirit who is groaning on our behalf. Not because he cannot articulate, but because groaning is appropriate to a burden bearer. It is appropriate to a burden bearer. Listen, back to the moving the piano, right? If there's six of us moving the piano and only five are groaning, what can you conclude about the sixth person? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they're steering. That's what you can conclude. Okay? They're really lifting. They're groaning. The Spirit's groaning on our behalf is the reality that He has really entered in really entered in. Wow. Verse 27, he who searches the hearts, that's a reference to God the Father. The Father's knowledge is complete, it is direct, it is unclouded. God the Father is not dependent upon me to articulate my concerns properly, right? He doesn't need me to inform him. You know, newsflash, God, this is what's going on, could use a little help. It's better than that. It's better than just that God knows. He also knows our concerns. And beyond that, he knows the desires of the Spirit for us. My problem is I'm ignorant of what I should be praying. The Spirit is not ignorant. He knows. And he prays. And he enters into my suffering. In accordance with the will of God. If you ask anything according to my will, it will be given to you. Listen, the Spirit of God's prayers always are answered on behalf of His people. Wow. Spirit is praying and groaning and and coming alongside us in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. Right on target. Absolutely guaranteed to be fulfilled. 
How many times do we ask each other, pray for me, right? Please pray for me. I'm in a difficult place. Sure. But I'm limited in what I can express. The Spirit is never limited. He is never limited. He is right there with you in the trenches. Feeling your burden. And expressing it to God the Father in a way that is guaranteed to be answered. That's soul stabilizing. That is soul stabilizing. It is the hope of glory, beloved. It is the intercession of the Spirit. And and third and finally here, it is the, the knowledge of providence. This is the third leg of the stool. The knowledge of providence. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The all things here, by the way, has to be suffering. That is the context. It's got to relate at least primarily to suffering. I would say that's further confirmed when you look at verse 35, right? Where it's continuing this this idea of of the difficulties that come into the life of a believer, in particular by the hostile action of others, right? Who will separate us from the love of Christ, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword. So when Paul is talking here, he is talking first and foremost about the suffering that comes upon the children of God because of their commitment to the risen Savior. And he's saying, you are a child of the king, I know, but you are suffering in the midst of this. But I think Paul would be okay with us widening it out. I think Paul would be okay with widening this out. I I think we can argue from what I would call the greater to the lesser, right? The greater to the lesser. Listen, if, if God is causing all things, that is, persecution and suffering for Christ to work for good, then those lesser things he is also causing to work for good. It stands to reason. That my health problems are being used by God. It stands to reason that my financial setbacks are being used by God. It stands to reason that the, that the agonizing relationships, the difficult relationships in which I find myself are being used by God. It stands to reason that the devastating loss I feel in the death of a loved one is being used by God. Notice what Paul says here. We know, we know that God causes all things to work together. To work together. The Greek verb here provides us the English word synergism. Provides us the English word synergism. What is a synergism? It's the idea of, of various elements Right? Producing in a greater effect when combined, and they can be completely different from any one of the individual elements. They come together to a greater good. For example, ordinary table salt. Ordinary table salt is, is composed of two poisons. 
sodium and chlorine. But when they are brought together in synergism, it produces something that is beneficial, yea, essential to life. Salt. Now we need to think carefully about what is being promised us here. Paul is not promising that God will overrule life's evils in such a way to make us happy. He is not promising that God will synergistically bring all this together in such a way to make us healthy. He is not promising that God is is actively at work in such a way to make us prosperous. He is not saying that God is is working this out in such a way that my life will be trouble-free. In fact, just the opposite. We're a follower of Christ. We should assume troubles will come to us. But, beloved, here's the soul-stabilizing truth here. Paul is promising that God will overrule, overpower, and subjugate trouble in my life in such a way that they will work synergistically to change me into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, he predestined his children to become conformed to the image of Christ. God is working synergistically in your life as a child of God today through all of the circumstances, all of the pain, all of the suffering to transform you, to make you like Jesus Christ. Now, how can he do this? Well, it's because he's in control of everything. He is in control of everything, right? According to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, he is working out his eternal purpose in Christ. He's not a watchmaker who wound up his creation, let it begin to run down, and then stepped away to do something else. He is actively involved in every aspect of of his creation. There are no stray molecules in the creation of God. Every single thing he is actively, he is relentlessly guiding and directing to accomplish his eternal purpose. What that means is that evil cannot thwart his plans. Instead, God subdues evil. God forces evil to do his will. Listen, you want an illustration? Take a look at the life of Joseph, right? The end of the book of Genesis, where Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. Was it good that his brothers sold him into slavery? No. No. What we're talking about is what theologians call The unseen hand of providence, right? The unseen hand of providence. This is is God Almighty at work, and it is the basis of my confidence when things are seeming to fall apart all around me. All around me. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 28 something. Um, Paul doesn't say all things are good, right? You see that? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. 
There's a lot of things in life that are quite evidently bad, painful. You've all lived long enough to experience it. But God directs the affairs of life in such a way for those who are his, for those who are united to Christ by faith, for those who love God, he so works in the midst of the adversity and the pain and the tragedy and the suffering to bring about his great purpose, to make us like our Savior. We say goodness is not necessarily how I define it. It's according to God's definition. What is goodness? Again, I think in context here, you have to see it as being made like Jesus Christ. Being made like Christ. Beloved, mark this down. Hardship advances godliness more than ease and comfort. But boy, do we find ourselves in attention here, don't we? Hardship advances godliness more than ease and comfort. Don't you have a godliness pill? Isn't that really what we would like? Take two godliness pills and see you in the morning. But no. Now, in the midst of our difficulties, are are we going to be able to identify what God is doing? I doubt it. I doubt it. Be careful here. When someone's in the middle of adversity, be very careful. You don't come up to them and start telling them what God's doing in their life. You have no idea. Absolutely none. At best, you're guessing. And you're not helping. You're not helping. I would suggest that we seldom know what God is doing. Seldom. This is an article of faith, not of sight. Oh, I can see my suffering's doing this and that, and God's doing this and that in my life. I doubt you can see that. I doubt it. We need to trust him. This life begins by faith. This life is carried by faith. So how can I trust him? How can I trust him in the midst of all of this? How can I trust that the, that the hardship, the suffering, the evil that I'm experiencing is really going to be used by you, God, to bring about good. Take a look at verses 31 and 32. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
Check out verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Listen, how do I know that God is at work in the, in the situation of life that is so evidently evil? Is I need only look at how he brought about my redemption. Is there any circumstance in this universe that is more manifestly evil on its surface than the betrayal and death of the very Son of God at the hands of godless men? And yet, according to God's foreknowledge and predestination, it is the means and mechanism by which he unites the people to himself. He breaks the back of the serpent through the death of his own son. If God will do that, there is nothing that he can and will not do for his children. Beloved, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, we need these soul anchors. We need to tie ourselves firmly to this reality. May God give us grace to believe the, the truth of the gospel and to apply it. Our Father, thank you. I thank you for your sustaining grace even in this last hour. I thank you, Father, that in the midst of some real difficulties, that we can we can have a confidence. Oh Lord, lift our eyes to glory. Get us off the horizontal. Let us apprehend the reality of who we really are in Christ and and what is our future. Our Father, enable us to, to understand the reality that your Holy Spirit is right there in the trench with us, feeling our pain, expressing our prayers in a way that we never could. And Father, may you give us a rock-solid faith in the reality that you are not unattentive, but that you are working every detail according to your great plan. May these things stabilize us in the midst of our troubles. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.